Welcome back, America. Congressman Ro Khanna returns. He is the member for the 17th Congressional District in California. He's a progressive Democrat. He's also a member of the House Armed Services Committee and the Select Committee on the uh, Chinese Communist Party and Oversight. Good morning, Congressman. Welcome back. Good to see you. Good morning, Hugh. Thanks for having me back on. Well, I appreciate your joining me. Uh, we originally set this up because you were objecting to some comments Vivek Ramaswamy made on my show, and I want to get there. But first, you just got back from India, and you were with Michael Waltz. And this is a lead-in to our conversation. What did you do, see, and hear in India? Well, the trip was to strengthen the U.S. strategic relationship, which is going to be one of the most important defining relationships of the 21st century. We visited the Navy Western Command that is in Mumbai, India, and the Indian Army is working, Indian Navy is working with uh, our Navy uh, to make sure that there's freedom of the seas uh, in uh, the Arabian Sea and the Indian Ocean. Uh, we talked about the importance of cooperation uh, at the Indian border where they have faced aggression uh, in Ladakh, uh, in Arunachal Pradesh from China. We discussed the importance of collaboration to deny uh, China hegemony in Asia and the growing uh, defense uh, and economic partnership. Now, how many days were you there? I've never been to India, so I have no idea what kind of oh, time you gotta it takes. Go. You got to go. Let me know when, you're, when you want to go. We were there uh, about uh, six to seven days. I mean, different people in the delegation came at different times. Uh, there, uh, We visited everyone from Bollywood actors who are uh, having an impact on uh, on Hollywood to collaborative efforts with Boeing uh, in terms of uh, the trade we do. Here's one who important distinction between our trade with India and China. Uh, in India, they actually buy things from us. They're buying uh, 200 airplanes from the United States, creating m- millions of jobs and uh, and and. Uh, income for Americans, unlike the structural trade deficits with China. And one of the things I didn't realize until I was on the trip is it's not just America that has a trade deficit with China. Guess who else has a trade deficit with China? India, Japan, all of their uh, Asian uh, neighbors. And so there is a, a large concern, not just about China's military potential uh, aggression, Uh, but also the unfair economic terms that China has been playing with, not just with us, uh, but with other countries in Asia. Now, India has a very unusual view of the world. They are not really part, I know they're part of the Quad, but they have remained standoffish on Ukraine and Russia. Did that come up at all, Congressman Khanna? Because it's disappointing to me. I thought they would have been with the West on this, but they've remained non-aligned on it. It did. We had a two-hour meeting uh, with Jay Shankar, who is their uh, external minister. And uh, I believe, I agree with you, that I uh, would have hoped that India could have taken even a stronger stance against uh, uh, Putin's uh, invasion. They've come around to clearly condemning it, but they still are reliant uh, on arms. Now, when we pressed the matter with uh, Minister Jay Shankar, he said, look, America stopped supplying us arms after 1965. And we did that because uh, President Nixon needed Pakistan uh, to normalize relations with China. Uh, In that historical context, you can understand why the United States wanted to normalize relations with China. 
uh, to be able to uh, counter the Soviet Union. Uh, and Kissinger and, uh, and, uh, and uh, Nixon made that decision. But then India was left with a border that was unsecure with China, with America not selling India any arms post-1965. And they had to go to the Russians to get arms, both to defend themselves against China and Pakistan. And that was almost a 40-year history. Now we're building the defense relationship. But he said you can't expect overnight for there to be a switch. They want to switch. They understand our stuff is better, uh, and we need to work uh, with that. But we, we did press them on, can you at least make sure that you're condemning this more clearly, more loudly, more openly, uh, because this is a precedent for China then to go and engage in invasion. Now that's our bridge to Taiwan. Now, Lord Palmerston, I think it was Lord Palmerston, pr British Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary, said, nations have no permanent enemies or friends, only permanent interests. Our permanent interest is in freedom of the seas. We are a naval country. We must have freedom of the seas. Does India share our concern about the Taiwan Strait and the independence of Taiwan from the Chinese Communist Party? Yes. I mean, they are very concerned that uh, China is increasing its aggression uh, in the South China Sea. They're concerned about the freedom of navigation of the seas. Uh, they're concerned about the use of potential military force uh, to, to coerce Taiwan and also uh, other islands and other uh, navigation uh, in, in those seas. I mean, as you know, the Malacca Straits is responsible for almost 80 percent of the world's trade. Uh, India is dependent on it. Japan is. South Korea is. We have interests there. We have almost uh, $2 trillion at stake in that region, trillion dollars invested, trillion dollars of trade. So they share uh, our concerns. So this got started because Vivek was on my show a week ago yesterday and stated that he would uh, do away with strategic ambiguity and defend Taiwan until they became semiconductor independent. And then pretty explicitly said he would abandon it. Now, he walked that back last night on Sean Hannity. I don't know if you've seen that, Congressman. But what oh, was I'm your... I don't understand what he was thinking, you know, here... I, I really don't, because here, here's the point. But as I understood him saying it, he basically was saying that uh, he was going to give a, a, a green light after 2028 uh, for Gigi Pig to walk into Taiwan after we were uh, semiconductor independent. And I, I guess I welcome him to come to my district, because here's what he maybe doesn't just know. We are leading the world by far in the design of the tools necessary to make semiconductors. I mean, by magnitudes of order, uh, Silicon Valley is the innovation capital of the world. We're leading the world in the design of semiconductors. No one, TSMC, no one can do the design of the tools that happens at applied materials. No one can do the design of the semiconductor chips. We give all of that to TSMC and then they do the production. Now, I am all for bringing that production back. That's exactly what the CHIPS Act, which I was a co-author with, with Todd Young uh, and Senator Schumer and others, is bipartisan. McConnell voted for it. That's exactly what we're doing. And we're putting a $4 billion center in the heart of Silicon Valley at Applied Materials. That's going to be the most innovative semiconductor center in the world by orders of magnitude better than any other country. If you were to give Taiwan... Uh, to China after uh, 2028, which Vivek was implying, you're basically handing over $800 billion, if not more, of American intellectual property, of our most advanced designs, of our most advanced technology. You're just gifting them to a platter. Even if we achieved semiconductor independence, 
why in the world would you want to take all of our sensitive technology, all the export controls where we have, and gift that, give that to China and a silver player? I couldn't think of anything more catastrophic to American interests. Well, Vivek is a learning machine, and so he's he's attacking. It's sort of the electric fence theory of politics. When you run into electric fence, you go the other way. So he's tacking, and he's tacked back to a uh, strategic ambiguity after 2029 last night on Sean, and I'll explore that more with him. But, uh, Congressman, I just blame Yale Law School because you all graduate from there thinking you know everything until someone tells you you don't. So I just blame Yale Law School. And uh, you are well, a few well, years old. Some of us leave there. Some of us, at least I do, leave there thinking, wow, uh, there are a lot of really thoughtful, smart people in America that have made us the greatest country in the world. Maybe we should have some humility. Maybe we should study the, uh, the Constitution and the Declaration and study foreign policy and know uh, what, what what happened before, before we try to add our chapter in American history. It's okay to evolve in real time, though. Now, tell me, Congressman, because you work with Gallagher, you work with Waltz, and they're both on armed services, and they're yeah. smart guys like you. They're both what do we, people. Yeah, they are. They're, and, and they're serious about this. What do you think we need to do to deter China cross-strait uh, aggression against Taiwan? Well, we first need to listen to what the Taiwanese people want. Uh, they they uh, want certain types of weapons that we should be providing them, which we have an obligation to provide them based on the Taiwan Relations Act. They want javelins, they want stingers, they want HIMARS. Both, all of those types of weapons will provide a deterrence. We have the Seventh uh, Navy fleet aggressively deployed. I, I also, you know. Uh, heard some of Vivek's comments about, well, we want to have a, a, a destroyer in the region. We want to have the, uh, the, the the Seventh Fleet. I mean, he didn't. I don't know if he knows that we already have the Seventh Fleet actively uh, in the region. He may want to just study up some of all of this is public information. I'm not telling you anything from classified settings. But we need to have an aggressive naval uh, posture in in the region, uh, and we have to make it clear that we have the long range missiles. That uh, were there ever a military a threat to Taiwan, uh, that, uh, that, that the Taiwanese would have the ability to defend themselves. And that is uh, our explicit policy under the Taiwan Relations Act. When you travel with a Green Beret like Michael Waltz for that long, do you get into the specifics of how one builds a Taiwanese military? Did you have a chance to talk with him about that? We, we, we didn't get into the details on this trip because a lot of our focus was uh, on uh, on India, he did bring up that he was one of the few people who had actually uh, served, uh, I think, over Indian airspace in Afghanistan or had uh, worked with the Indian Army. I mean, he's got a remarkable history of service to our uh, to our nation, uh, and he was very uh, interested in the collaboration uh, with the Indian Navy. But we should not we should be clear eyed about what India will or will not do. I mean, this is another important. Uh, point. I mean, the idea that they're going to block the Molokai Strait is is just unreasonable to expect. Japan and South Korea wouldn't go along with that. In uh, India, uh, from the conversations we had, uh, isn't going to go do that because you can bypass that through the Lombok or, or, or Sunda and you wouldn't get the Asian uh, support for that. The details here actually matter. But what can we expect India to do? We can expect India to be aggressive uh, at their border in Ladakh and Arunachal Pradesh so that China then has a two-front concern. Uh, they have to worry about the border line of control with India and not just put all of their resources in 
uh, into any, a, a Taiwan uh, potential invasion and into uh, deterring the freedom of the seas. And so understanding what our Indian partners are willing to do, not willing to do, and where we can actually deter China is going to be critical to having a coherent foreign policy. Yeah, it's not a game of risk. I mean, you don't get to move the little counters around and claim a country. It's called diplomacy, but we'll talk more about that. The congressman's going to stay with me during the break and after the break, so don't go anywhere. i got a lot to cover with him, America, but I'm going to take a time out here for radio. I'll talk with the congressman off air. We'll put it on the website. We'll play it tomorrow morning, and then we'll be back on air. Stay right where you are, because we've got a lot to cover with the congressman from Silicon Valley, Ro Khanna. He's a Democrat, but he's actually kind of a smart guy, and we like him. Stay tuned. I'm back now with Congressman Ro Khanna. We're going to do some politics during the break. Congressman, you did hypos at Yale Law, right? I mean, you did lots of hypos. Sure. Yeah, so here's my hypo. President Biden wins the South Carolina primary and then he and, and the first lady announced, you know what, we're too old for this job and we're just not going to run anymore. <laughs> so Gavin Newsom enters, as does Roy Cooper, as does maybe Jared Golden, uh, Jared Polis, as does maybe Gretchen Whitmer and, of course, Vice President Harris. Would you be in favor of Gavin Newsom? Would you be endorsing the governor of California, who would be a formidable, almost impossible to beat nominee? Oh, I don't think he'd be impossible to beat. I think we'd have a lot of other contenders. Uh, and, I mean, a Republican. Uh, As a Republican, we couldn't beat Gavin in the general. I disagree with that, actually. I think you'd you'd have people like Shapiro or others would be better candidates uh, potentially in, in the Midwest. I mean, I and I think Biden is a, a stronger candidate in Ohio and Michigan and Wisconsin uh, in a large parts of the country. But but my hypo is that he's decided to retire because he should. And I don't expect I you to comment. I think you yeah, I think you'd, I think they're, you know, I mean, I would consider uh, the governor, but I think you'd have other stronger candidates in the Midwest. I, I don't, uh, I think the key is who's going to win Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio. Uh, and uh, I think it's going to take someone who can connect in those places. Well, Gretchen Whitmer's up there, but I don't think she can win. But I do think you're right about, do you know Governor Shapiro? I do. Uh, I don't think he's a Yaley. Is he I like Governor Shapiro. I, I, and I think there'd be others. I, I think there'd be a number of candidates who would be uh, in in that conversation. Uh, Gavin certainly would be, but I, uh, you know, I, I, I think it, it's going to be important for someone to win uh, in the Midwest and to understand that you have to have a vision for uh, for for America. And and maybe he'll be able to do it, but I, uh, you know, I, I I wouldn't assume that he would somehow be the strongest. Okay, now in terms of that, do you rule out the the president declining to run based upon just feeling his years? Do you do you think that's not possible, or is that possible? I rule that out. I mean, I don't understand why people keep underestimating uh, President Biden. He uh, this is a person who's run for president three times. He he told uh, in some report I read he told his future. Uh, mother-in-law before marriage that he was going to be president of the United States. He is a person of steely resolve and ambition. And I, I would just uh, tell my Republican friends, you make a big mistake by underestimating him. I mean, he's the one who beat Donald Trump. He's had the resolve to run three times. Uh, he ran for the highest office after losing his son, the most unimaginable grief. Uh, what makes you think that that type of a person with that kind of steely ambition is just going to step aside? Because I, what makes me think that is, it's a shame what we're watching in real time in Maui and other places. And the president is 
infirm and old, but I don't expect you to agree with me. Stay tuned, Congressman Khan. I'll be right back with you. We're going to turn next to the uh, to the question of due process and whether or not they taught that at Yale Law School. Stay tuned, America. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, continuing my conversation with Congressman Ro Khanna of the 17th Congressional District in California. i got three big things to cover with you. First of all, I explained to the audience there are many kinds of due process. There's procedural due process, there's substantive due process, and there's criminal due process. I took criminal due process from a guy named Jerry Israel. It was fascinating, and I've only done two criminal things in my life. Did you ever represent any criminal defendants, Congressman? I did not. No, I did not in my career. I was... Uh more in technology law. I mean, I, it's been a while since I took uh, criminal law, so uh, you'll be testing my knowledge of whatever. Well, I'm, I'm just curious of your impression of the judge in the federal trial in Washington, D.C., setting the former president's trial date for the day before Super Tuesday. What do you make of that? You know, here's what I think is going to happen. Uh, I think either pre- the former president, Trump, is going to be the nominee or not be the nominee. Uh, if, if he's the nominee... Uh, my guess is that the uh, there's going to be a consideration on uh, the, the uh, consideration for Republican a Republican nominee to be able to uh, campaign, and the trial dates will take that into account. And if he's not the nominee, uh, then the trials will move on. But I, I think the judges will look at this in real time to make sure that they're not interfering in any way with the election process. Uh, while still having the court calendar. Uh, well, you may, a, you may have jet topic. lag still. She set the trial date for the federal trial in D.C. for the Monday before Super Tuesday. She did that yesterday. Well, that could be moved. Yeah, but that she said it yesterday. Right. The, the prosecutors wanted January. Trump said 2026. She compromised on the day before. And I just think it's outrageous. I think it's a terrible insult to our idea, uh, our fundamental commitment to fair. Uh, proceedings. And I wonder if it resonates with you that way as well. Well, I'm not sure that that's going to be the actual date at the at the end of the day. I mean, there are appeals, there's an ability to move it. I mean, let's see what happens. Uh, you know, so I, but I'm not, you know, I'm a, a member of Congress. It's not for me to make the decisions on where the trial dates are going to happen. My, my instinct on all of this is they're not going to have uh, trials in the middle of something that's going to compromise a candidate's ability uh, who has a real traction uh, to have a fair fight. I just, I don't see that happening in our country. I don't think he's the presumptive nominee, but he is certainly the leader. And I am just amazed that we have four prosecutors who are Democrats uh, running four cases in four different jurisdictions. I guess Jack Smith is one prosecutor doing two cases. And that red uh, blue America doesn't seem to understand that red America thinks this is a, a a complete setup job. Do you understand my concerns about this and how it looks? Well, look, I've talked to obviously Republican colleagues, and they feel that uh, the, uh, the the timing of it is uh, one which where where Trump where the charges are, are are too far. I believe that you have to follow the law and some of the conduct alleged is very, very, very serious. Uh, And you can't just say, okay, because someone was president or someone is a candidate that you're above the law, everyone is under the law and that these these allegations uh, with the evidence need to be pursued. But what we're discussing is the timing. And I do think we need to make sure that in the timing, 
uh, if Trump does emerge as the Republican nominee, that it does not compromise uh, the ability to have a robust campaign schedule. Uh, and I, I imagine that the courts will take that into consideration if he is the nominee. I mean, he may not be the nominee. I mean, that's still a... Yeah, but uh, I, I, uh, more fundamentally, uh, somebody's got to go full Margaret Chase Smith, who stood up to Joe McCarthy. Some Democrat has to stand up and say, due process matters for the former president, and this is out of control. Four different prosecutions in the middle of primary season. But we'll wait. I want to get to two more things. First of all, you're the 17th CD. You're Silicon Valley. John Garamendi has Solana County. A bunch of your constituents bought a bunch of John Garamendi's constituents' land. Uh, 85 square miles, I believe. 55,000 acres. $800 million. They're, they're nuts. They're never going to be able to do it. I was a land use lawyer in California for 30 years until I retired. But what do you think about that, Congressman Khan? Have you talked to Garamendi about it yet? He has not raised the issue with me. I, uh, are there specific issues uh, at play there? Because I, it hasn't come... He hasn't raised it to me and others. I ha it hasn't come on my radar yet. Okay, well, I'm telling you, you those guys are either planning a tax scam by upgrading it and then donating it, or they're out of their minds. Last subject. I'm going to start it and take you for five minutes after the break. The coming wave is by Mustafa Suleiman, which is about AI. I, I had Tristan Harris on last week talking about AI. Who and Chuck Schumer's bringing in all the AI people, which is not my idea of the best place to arbitrate what we need to do. First of all, are you familiar with the uh, the coming wave and the the concerns and the promise of AI? You must be. It's it's your bread and butter, right? I am. Yes. Uh, should I tell you my my view on it, or do, yeah, I want I want to know what you think we should do because I really I'm open to anything, but I don't think. There's the music. We're going to do this off air and then I'm going to play it tomorrow morning. Don't go anywhere, Congressman, because he's one of the smart guys. We've got to do something about this, America, and it's got to be bipartisan and it's got to be smart. So we're going to start with Ro Khanna after the break and I'll post it on the website and play it in the morning. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Adam and Harley and Dwayne. I'm going to continue with Congressman Khanna right after this. Back now with Congressman Ro Khanna, who represents Silicon Valley. And the, the precipitate event is the coming wave, the brand new. It will soon be a bestseller in America by one of the four or five guys that John Ellis says knows what he's talking about. Congressman Khanna, I have no predisposition on this. All I know is that we've got to either abandon the field to technology's awful march or do something. What do you think we should do? Well, first, it's important to understand for folks listening, what AI actually is. It's basically statistics. You, you put in a lot of data and out uh, comes a probability of what should come next. What If you start a story saying once, uh, the computer will predict that the next sentence, next word should be upon. And it's really uh, just a statistical machine that's making decisions based on voluminous data. What does this mean positive from a positive perspective? You go to a doctor, uh, maybe to an ER, and you have some symptoms. The doctor puts it into a, uh, a handheld device and outcome three possible diagnoses, one which the doctor may not have meant, been able to, to see himself or herself. So you're augmenting uh, human ability uh, in medicine. You're augmenting human ability and building f new factories. You want to bring steel manufacturing back to the United States, other manufacturing back to the United States. The use of AI can have massive increases uh, in productivity, allowing us to continue to be the workshop of the world. You want to have semiconductor independence? We need the, the AI. 
so there should not be sort of just a dismissal of it. Now, there are dangers uh, to this technology. The biggest danger being uh, we want a, a human check. You want human decision-making. You don't want uh, AI just to be programmed based on statistics and probability making decisions for uh, for critical things like weapon systems or, uh, or getting out of hand in terms of safety without a human check. Uh, you also want to make sure that we know what the data set is that's going into it. When you look at our military applications of AI, it's the cleanest, clearest data. They scrub that data. Right now on ChatGPT, you've got all the, the, the internet. So you've got a lot of bad data uh, there as well, uh, in addition to uh, positive data. So I think what we need is we need to get the actual technologists in there and some of the people who study this field and civic leaders, ethics leaders, and have a thoughtful approach to the regulation. What we don't want to do is just copy Europe, where you're, I mean, Europe's not going to have a single AI startup. They're, they're, they don't want to go there because they have so overregulated, actually, the things that may not even make us safe, uh, that they've, they may lead in uh, the regulation. But what's the point of regulating when you have no companies? Well, I agree with all that. I also believe the Chinese Communist Party and the United States are engaged in an arms race about AI, and we'd better win it in order to deter the deployment of AI against us. And it is most alarming when it's combined with biotechnology and the ability to produce pathogens and the ability to produce weaponry. My question is, um, you, you mentioned technologists and the civic-minded. It's actually your problem. It's a congressional problem. It's got to be done by Congress. Senator Schumer's bringing in all the big AI guns, whether it's Elon Musk or Peter Thiel or Mark Zuckerberg and, and others to start talking to him about it. I'm not sure I'd start there. I think I'd start in the House. But what general approach appeals to you? I've got some ideas, but I have got no fixed star. I just don't want to screw up the useful development of it. I don't want to be Europe, but I also don't want to lose the arms race to China. And I also don't want artificial intelligence uh, so, uh, what do they call it? Escape. Artificial intelligence escape so that it cannot be contained and therefore generates its own abilities randomly, not war game scenario, but in the hands of other perhaps malevolent actors. What are the first steps? Well, there's a bipartisan group of us who have actually been meeting with Kevin McCarthy to at least begin that conversation uh, in the House. And as you mentioned, Senator Schumer is doing it. I would have uh, a few key principles. Uh, one, make sure that for any uh, sensitive uh, use of, of, of AI, you have human decision making. Uh, second, uh, make sure that we know the types of data, that there's some disclosure in the types of data that is being used for AI. And third, have some licensing. I mean, in the wrong hands, AI can be like nuclear technology, do, do incredible harm. What is the uh, licensing requirement uh, for the handling of a sensitive AI uh, so that it doesn't get into the wrong hands? And here you're going to have a tension between wanting to make AI open source so you have competition and new AI startups versus uh, having AI uh, regulated and only in the hands of a few actors, which isn't ideal, but at the same time, it has to be protected because you don't want this technology getting into the wrong hands overseas. So I would start with those that broader framework. The one thing I will tell you, Hugh, is this is not partisan. I mean, there's you just people don't know the issue well enough yet to have a partisan position. And that's the, 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 the silver lining here is that Congress could actually get to work 
uh, have a, uh, a thoughtful framework uh, that, uh, that does our job to make sure we have the benefits of AI uh, without the downside. Remember one point in, in my district, we are one third of the S&P 500. There's about 30 companies in a 30 mile jurisdiction that have a $10 trillion market cap and the AI revolution uh, is at the heart of Silicon Valley. And, and, and there are a lot of problems uh, that, that technology has, has brought about on social media and other things, but it is also what is going to allow America to lead the 21st century in productivity, in innovation, and in national security. Uh, and we want to make sure we, can, we have that lead and that, uh, that uh, ability uh, in both national security and the economy uh, to be uh, pre pre preeminent. I agree with all that. Now, my only suggestion as you begin these conversations, A, I would think that the select committee on the Chinese Communist Party could easily become and AI. Just tack it on and keep going because it seems to me that it's bipartisan. It seems to me that it's working. It seems to me it has smart people on it. My first suggestion, though, is do we have visibility? Ought we to mandate visibility into every meeting in, by the NSA or uh, DARPA into every meeting of every AI company in America. In other words, if you want to do this in America, you're going to let us see what you're doing and we're going to have the source codes. Would you agree with that, Congressman? Well, we need to have, we, we, we definitely need disclosure on it. I mean, I, I don't know if you want to go and uh, have the, the, the government get every single uh, part of a private company's proprietary data, but they need to be, be at least telling us what data they're using and what they purpose of the AI is and what their functionality is. So there has to be sufficient disclosure without, uh, you know, making all of these companies public companies. I mean, that, that's... Uh, well, I, I agree with that. I don't want group. public utilities. They won't innovate. I mean, we've saw, we saw in Maui and in California what public utilities do. They do not work. They do not, they do not keep the public interest in mind. But to get visibility from DARPA would require one thing, and this is where I want to end with you. We need really smart people, not just working for Meta and Google and Amazon and Palantir. We re need really smart people working for the Department of Defense. And you're going to have to pay them, Congressman. You're going to have to pay them a lot. Do you think Congress can develop a schedule for AI scientists to come to work for us? It's a great point. We not, we not only need it for AI scientists, we need it for technologists generally. I mean, you want to regulate social media, you want to recognize privacy. The tech companies are running circles around a lot of the uh, regulatory agencies uh, because of a lack of uh, sufficient technological expertise. Sure, we need to pay them just like we pay doctors at a higher uh, uh, schedule and uh, some of the, the jobs, but it's more than pay you. Right now, the tech person is considered uh, the third or fourth most important person in, a, in an organization uh, in, a, in a room and they don't feel like they have much authority. So if you're a tech person and you graduated from MIT or Caltech, where are you going to go? Are you going to go serve in the government where you're going to get kicked around by a bunch of lawyers and other folks? Or are you going to go uh, to Silicon Valley where you're going to uh, run things and change the world? We've got to empower uh, some of the technologists to have real authority and leadership because people are motivated. They want to serve the country. They want to do something big. They want to uh, help, but they, they often feel like they don't have the ability or the power. They're stifled in a bureaucracy. 
So I think it's, yes, paying them more, but also giving them more uh, real responsibility and titles. I, you know, I, I think that is, let's, let's end there, because I think that is, we're not going to be able to regulate with the existing structures in a smart way. I wish you guys could issue a stand-down order to every agency, because they don't know what they're doing. Uh, and I say that as a regulator. I ran OPM, and I, I just know regulatory. They don't know, right? They're just, this is all new, and they've been in the government for 10 years. And according to Mustafa, the, the startups are three a week. There are three startups in AI a week. We are not going to keep up with this in the absence of smart people in the government. And I don't know where you, I don't think you would get an argument from the Republicans on that. So I hope you take that and maybe talk to uh, uh, Leader Jeffries and Speaker McCarthy about adding on to the CCP committee some additional duties other as assigned, because we got to get ahead of this. And, and uh, I hope you'll come back and talk to me about this. Because you might have the most interesting district in America, but your your, your people scare me, Congressman. Your Silicon Valley people do not have a... They're, they're like Vivek, right? You can't spend 30 years doing computer science and then understand national security. It doesn't work that way. It, it, it's hard to do. Well, I, well, I think you need, uh, you need both. You need the technologists and the innovators and the entrepreneurship to allow for... Uh, national security. But I, you know what I think you, we need a little bit more of in our, in our country in general and politics is humility. There are so many people who sacrificed for this country, from the men and women who scaled the cliffs in Normandy uh, to uh, Dr. King and the people who marched in civil rights, to our founders who built the Constitution, to the foreign policy architects who, by and large, preserved the peace in Han-America uh, play a leadership role post-World War II. I have a lot of critiques of uh, where I think the country needs to go. I think we hollowed out our industrial base. We made a mistake in, uh, in not having manufacturing. We hollowed out factory towns. But we have to recognize that there, for 250 years almost, there were a lot of brilliant people with courage, sweat, and tears who built America. And sometimes I think what happens is the new person comes into Congress, to Senate, to President, and you don't recognize that collective wisdom. And that you know where that collective wisdom is? It's in the American people. And this is why I fundamentally think that the cardinal sin of a politician is to think that somehow they're better than the American people, not because an individual uh, may not be smart, but because our country has so much collective wisdom in it. And if we just had that humility, we would stop with all of the smugness, the red states are better than the blue states, the blue states are better than the red states. You know, one thing I, I, I watched that Newsom Hannity interview, like why can't we talk about America being great, about us needing both the red states and the blue states to lead, about China being the challenge, uh, and, and about learning from each other uh, and recognizing none of us have a monopoly on the truth. Well, I, I, will, I will add to not only the yes, I would like, I, I like the fact that Governor Newsom went on with Sean. I, I, I appreciate that you come on and talk to me. There are very few Democrats who will cross over into Republican land and talk to us. And it just is a nightmare for getting anything done going forward. Let me close with this. We did not see the Korean War coming. We did not see the catastrophic escalation in Vietnam uh, leading us into that abyss. We did not see 9-11 coming. We did not see the consequences of not executing in 1991 on Saddam Hussein. We did not see the consequences of the second Iraq war or the Afghanistan 20-year war. We didn't see what would happen when we assisted in Libya or in Serbia. We did not see most recently the Syrian genocide coming. We did not see 
Kabul. So there's a strategic deficit in both parties, Congressman. How do you guys go up? And hopefully the, the select committee on the Chinese Communist Party is, is talking through that. How do you fix that at the same time that you're trying to keep up with AI and we have a red-blue divide? That's a small question to exit with. <laughs> well, you look, uh, you highlighted all the, uh, the failures of, uh, of, of American foreign policy. We also you know, won World War II. We won the Cold War. They, they, they said Germany and Japan were going to be the dominant post-Cold War economies. They were wrong. It's America. Uh, I believe our biggest mistakes, of course, in my view, were the Iraq War and getting diverted in the uh, Iraq War and also the hollowing out of our middle class and letting all our industry leave for China and, and, and Asia. But I think that there is now a bipartisan recognition that uh, China is a, uh, a threat in, in, in Taiwan and to our economic security and that there is a readjustment of making sure we have uh, the critical industries here and that we're vigilant in, uh, in making sure that there's effective deterrence. There, there was a time, I think, for 20 years where many of us were asleep. Uh, that's no longer the case. And uh, that should give uh, some hope. There's also, a think, uh, a recognition on both sides of the, uh, the, the aisle that uh, we were overextended militarily, that we were in a number of these conflicts that weren't advancing uh, American interests. So uh, we have a, a, a very messy democracy. We have a very uh, loud democracy. But we still have the, the great thing about America is we have a capacity uh, for self-criticism. We have a capacity even to my detriment uh, to have total ridicule of our politicians. You know, they, you want to go into politics, you go check your Twitter feed uh, for every one comment that's saying something nice, there'll be nine comments slamming you. I'm sure that'll be the case. Here. Oh, I wish you I got that you... ratio on my Washington Post columns, Congressman. I would and take I, one I out of 10. I say to something, you know, when you're a member of Congress, you're one of the 0.00001% privileged people in the world. You're getting to determine policy for the greatest nation uh, in the history of the world. And thank God we have a country where you can be laughed at and ridiculed and made fun of. And, and, and I think that sense of ability for self-criticism is what allows America, what you just said, all these failures, it, it allows us uh, to, to learn from it and correct. And, you know, Churchill said we do the wrong thing until we do the right thing. And uh, eventually we do the right thing. And I, I, I believe that. I fundamentally believe that uh, about our country, which is why I'm ultimately very optimistic about the country's future. Can I ask you one more question? We got time? Yeah. All right. The world today, in Hugh Hewitt's view, is Beijing is running the bad guys in alliance with Russia, Iran, North Korea, Belarus, a few other minor players. But it's basically China is the boss and the underbosses are Putin and Tehran. That is the reality of the world today. And the West is up against that. Is that your understanding of the world? Yeah, I think that that is our China and Russia are clearly the uh, our two strategic uh, challenges, adversaries. I think that's why the relationship with India is going to be so critical uh, in, in dealing with it. Uh, I think that, you know, China and Russia aren't going to always lock, march lockstep and there are opportunities there. But by and large, uh, we should be clear eyed about uh, what they're doing. I mean, Russia. Do you put Iran in that group? Because I think it's a yeah, very I tightly balanced. I would, I, I would add Iran. I would say that Iran is 
uh, is, of course, not the same power as, as China or Russia. But yes, Iran has uh, interests and, 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 uh, antithetic, antithetical to uh, the United States and to Israel. I mean, so uh, obviously. Oh, the Chinese just took you out, Ro. Ro. He's gone, but we appreciated the time. He dropped. Who? Yeah, you're back. Okay, because I thought maybe the Chinese cut you off. No, I think I, I think I've got a uh, my, my my team member was calling that I've got a got my next thing. But I okay. uh, is that uh, are we good? Yeah, we let let's close where we agree on on the problem facing us. Thank you for your time, Congressman. Keep coming back. Thank you. Appreciate it. Be well.